Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I'm talking to Jacqueline Davis, a returning guest who is the Binge Breakers podcast host, bulimia recovery coach, artist, and loving dog mum. After recovering from bulimia by focusing on habit and mindset change, she now helps others to do the same through her groundbreaking support programs. Prior to having bulimia, Jacqueline struggled with disordered eating for several years and food and exercise consumed her life. This later developed into bulimia, leaving Jacqueline in a very dark and lonely place. So if you want to hear Jacqueline's recovery story, she has been a previous guest on this podcast back in early September 2021, and it's been one of my most popular episodes. So I'll leave the link in the show notes if you'd like to listen to that one. Now in that episode, Jacqueline openly shared some of the triggers for developing an eating disorder, her path to recovery, and then later becoming a coach. This conversation offered a deep insight into the realities of living with bulimia, but also giving inspiration and hope that a full recovery is possible. So do go and check out that episode. So today, Jacqueline is back, and she is going to explore how purging in bulimia can keep you stuck. Because we know that's a behavior that triggers and perpetuates disordered eating cycles, but it can also feel so scary to let go of. And Jacqueline's going to talk all about decision-making in bulimia recovery, because doesn't it sometimes feel that you don't have a choice? So I know as well that Jacqueline is passionate about interrupting habits and changing thoughts to create an empowering recovery mindset. So I'm so excited to hear her expertise and know there's going to be lots of powerful takeaways from this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Are you wondering if your binge or emotional eating habits have triggered hormone and gut issues? Low energy, fatigue, bloating, brain fog, weight gain, more PMS, more menopause symptoms, more cravings, poor sleep, the list goes on. Did you know some of your hormone and gut symptoms can also fuel your emotional eating behaviors? Yes, they can. That's why it's so important to address the roots of your physical symptoms while working on the emotional mindset and self-love work. If you're ready to address each piece, be sure to check out Amber Omaniac, emotional eating, digestive and hormone expert with nine years of experience helping over 1,200 women with support on all of the above and without diets, without restriction or any quick fixes. Amber will do a full health assessment and help you get to the root of your symptoms with hormone testing, gut health assessing, and of course, support to help your body come back to balance with your mind and soul. Visit amberapproved.ca to book a 30-minute body freedom call or check out the No Sugar Coating podcast today to learn more about the connections between our relationship with food, mindset, and our health. Hi, Jacqueline, and thank you so much for coming back on the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. Great to have you here today. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. So, Jacqueline, please can I get you to introduce yourself to the listeners? 
Yeah, my name is Jacqueline Davis. I'm a bulimia recovery coach. I struggled with bulimia for about four years and disordered eating for about eight. And it started all from the pursuit of weight loss, turned into yo-yo dieting, turned into completely disordered eating habits. And then that eventually led me into bulimia. And then when I recovered, I knew I really wanted to help people with this issue as well, as it's obviously detrimental to people's lives. And so that's why I became a coach. And that's what I do now. And now I'm the host of the Binge Breakers podcast. And yeah, my Instagram is just Binge Breakers underscore bulimia. Lovely, brilliant. No, thank you, Jacqueline, for just yeah telling us more about yourself. And I know that when you came on the podcast before, so many people really enjoyed that episode, found it really helpful and kind of, you know, responded to that. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, you know, how's it going at Binge Breakers Bulimia at the moment? Like, what's kind of going on? How's your podcast doing? It's going good. I mean, the podcast has grown a lot. And my Instagram community has grown quite a lot. I'm doing a lot more reels now, which is, you know, I always was scared of doing that, but they're actually quite funny and enjoyable once you get into it. So I'm doing that a lot. And then as far as my community inside my programs, my Billy Me Recovery programs, that's going really well too. We've had a lot more people in there and it's cool because it's not just this isolated Believe me, recovery process. It's cool to see many different types of people coming together to recover and help each other. And like there will be an issue in the group, and then that someone will post about. And before I've even gotten to it, someone else who's going through recovery as well will comment, showing support and stuff like that, and offering advice that I couldn't even offer. So it's just, it's really cool. So that's what's going on in a nutshell as well. Mm, it sounds really great and yeah how valuable isn't it to have that community and I think as well for myself just knowing with bulimia just there's often so much shame around it isn't there and having somewhere safe where you can just be so open about what's going on is incredibly helpful Mm -hmm. yeah and with people who get it too I think that even when you have people in your life who know sometimes if they don't understand it can be hard to confide in them I was just talking to someone the other day, and they said they had told their boyfriend about their bulimia. And the person said that boyfriend said to them, this is a first world problem. It's like, oh, how dismissive, how awful to say to someone who's struggling. Mm. Yeah, I know. It's really tricky, isn't it? Because I think it's something that is really, really hard to understand, perhaps, unless you've been through it yourself, or you know, someone really close to you who's experienced it. It's something that's quite hard to get your head around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that those people that don't, quite understand you know the the very least they can just listen and be there and offer support but yeah I think you I don't want to say that if you can't if you haven't gone through it you can't help someone you can Mm -hmm. can obviously offer support but I think unless you've gone through it you don't truly relate or understand just like most experiences in life Mm, yeah but I think I hear what you're saying as well I think it's like something that carers can do that's just so helpful is just like listening not dismissing something that in itself is incredibly helpful isn't it even if it doesn't feel like you're doing anything yeah just being there for someone and supporting them because sometimes also I know that we're in a role well you're also a therapist but you do some coaching but as a coach it's kind of my job to help people and to maybe kind of dive into their mindset But sometimes people aren't even ready for that. They just need to talk about it and decompress it and let it be out in the air and open. They don't need advice or they don't need questions about it. They just need to talk about it. And that's kind of the first few stages, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Just being able to actually say things out loud and be heard, that itself, isn't it? It can be incredibly sort of powerful step along the recovery road. Mm -hmm. 
So can I just ask you as well, Jacqueline, with your bulimia programs as well, do you sometimes as well maybe have people that do those programs that might maybe purge but not binge or, you know, have slight kind of, I mean, I'm just wondering, maybe don't fit completely neatly into a bulimia diagnosis, but have many of the kind of main sort of aspects and the symptoms of bulimia, but maybe might fall what would be in the UK under OSFED, which would be other specified feeding and eating disorder. So, you know, so for example, say someone who is purging after every meal, but doesn't binge or, you know, so, or maybe like might be kind of over-exercising, but doesn't purge in terms of self-induced vomiting. I just wondered, like, are you quite sort of specific in who you take into your programs or is there a broader element there? Hmm, yeah, good question. I am very specific in who I describe as the ideal person to be in there because the program really heavily emphasizes on bulimia in particular and specifically because there's multiple different types of bulimia, but bulimia where you are binging and purging because that's the one that I have most experience with and personal experience with. However, we do get people in the program, they'll usually reach out to me beforehand because they want to be sure before they join that hey, actually, I just struggle with purging or I struggle with over-exercising. Is this still applicable? And it is still applicable. You just kind of have to go in with the mindset that not everything may relate to you. But there are definitely people in there. I mean, a lot of people don't fit neatly into bulimia or eating disorder labels, and they kind of maybe fluctuate between eating disorder things. It's kind of like it all goes under the umbrella. So to answer your question, yes. There are the majority of people in there are the classic binging and purging bulimia types, but then there are some different ones as well. Okay, lovely. Now, thank you for clarifying that. And I guess that brings us quite nicely on to one of the topics that I wanted to ask you more about today is about purging. So could you define what you mean by purging sort of within a bulimia diagnosis? Mm-hmm. What I mean by it is any sort of compensatory behavior that someone does after overeating or binging or eating any amount of food that they deem to be unacceptable and that they have to compensate for it in some way. And most of the time when I'm referring to purging, I am referring to self-induced vomiting because that's what I struggled with. And that's what the majority of the people that I help struggle with. But mm-hmm. purging can also mean over-exercising, laxative abuse, restriction. Mm-hmm. Anna, thank you. And I know something that you've really identified is that when people kind of have that behavior of purging within the sort of eating disorder symptoms, that it can be something that really perhaps keeps people stuck and prevents them from moving on and being able to let go of the eating disorder. So could you say a bit more about that in terms of how purging really could keep someone quite stuck? Yeah, I think there are several reasons why it keeps someone stuck. I think the the first thing is that it obviously can create shame and guilt. People already feel guilty about the food that they've eaten. And then they feel even guiltier about the purging that they've done. They feel like, especially with self-induced vomiting or laxatives, I think that there's this increased feeling of shame, like they've cheated somehow, or they've done something really bad and disgusting, even though like they should have more compassion for themselves. So I think that's one reason. And as we know, shame and guilt and negative emotions in general can drive you further into that binging and purging spiral where you feel like, oh, I'm such a terrible person. I shouldn't have done this. So I need to compensate further. I need to be good. I need to make up for it. 
and then they go into really rigid behaviors and then they eventually to get relief from those that mindset and that shame and guilt and rigid behaviors they go into binging again or seeking emotional relief with food and then i think something interesting that people don't realize about purging is that it can encourage more binging because i've talked to so many people and i did this myself where they feel like they've overeaten or they've eaten some sort of food some sort of amount of food where they feel like it's unacceptable it's the point of an overturn for whatever reason and they then think i have to purge and because they think that they have to purge they then think well i might as well binge or i might as well eat more food so it's worth it or so that it's easier to purge it makes people almost push themselves further into eating because they're going to purge for whatever reason there's multiple reasons why people do it purging can kind of encourage it. And then I think the last reason is that purging kind of starts the cycle over again because of that shame and guilt because it also makes it feel like you've wiped the slate clean when you actually haven't. You've kind of restarted the cycle and you're back in it again and you're back in that really low state and starting from this place of I have done it again and then you kind of restart the cycle. So those are all the reasons why I think purging keeps you in instead of how people tend to view it which is wiping the slate clean it's actually restarting the cycle. Yeah, and I think really interesting points. And I think I just sort of really resonate with some of those things you said, actually, because I think particularly when you have the option of purging, like particularly that sort of second point that kind of almost can encourage more binging, when there's like the option to be able to purge, it's almost like there is no limit then to the binge. It's almost like the door is completely wide open, whereas... Mm -hmm. When I know for myself in my own recovery, and I don't know if this was true for you, but once I knew that purging wasn't going to be an option anymore, it definitely did start to moderate the size of my binges. And I do know that's not true for everybody, but it definitely sort of had a positive impact on that kind of binge purge cycle in terms of reducing frequency and probably also the sort of size of the binges. Yeah, you're right that it's not the case for everyone. Like whenever I talk about this in my socials or my groups, there's at least one person that said, stopping purging never discouraged me from binging. And so of course, it's not the case for everyone. But I think a lot of people, when they know that they have, they don't have the option to purge, they're a lot less likely to go as hard as they would had they had the option to purge. And then I also think another point I forgot to mention is that purging, it's a trauma to your body. And it really messes up a lot of your digestion and your hunger and satiety cues because you've just eaten a bunch of food. And if you are specifically, if you're purging through self-induced vomiting, if you've just eaten a bunch of food, stretch your stomach out to the max, and then you've purged, gotten rid of that food, your body thinks it's eaten a lot of food and it hasn't. And so it's really confused (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it almost makes you hungrier and want to get more food sometimes, especially since your body starts learning no matter how much food we eat, it might not be enough. So I feel like that can even reinforce the cycle further. Yeah, no, that's a great point, isn't it? I think, yeah, your body's kind of like, your body physiology is all over the place, isn't it? After binging and purging. Mm -hmm. And yeah, (laughs) you don't know where you are. Your body doesn't know where you are. And yeah, your blood sugar is all over the place, isn't it? So I think it can really Mm -hmm. exacerbate those feelings sometimes of food being kind of quite addictive or just feeling like really strong cravings as well for food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's why people sometimes they start binging and purging in midday, they will do a 
for the rest of the day because it's kind of this vicious cycle. Let's keep on repeating this. Oh, we're hungry again. Oh, we need some sort of relief again. Our blood sugars crashed. And they're like, well, I feel crazy. But really, they're just kind of digging themselves a hole that they can't get out of. Yeah, no, so true. I want to pick up as well on the first point you said about sort of the shame and the guilt. Something that I experienced myself and I've experienced with many of my clients as well is I think with bulimia, perhaps particularly, although I think this is true of all eating disorders, but there's often that real sort of splitting off of negative emotion. So in terms of what someone might show the world, you know, like they may present as kind of coping, happy, you know, seemingly things are kind of all okay. And then any sort of negative emotion, maybe the kind of the worry, the disgust, the upset, the anger, the distress, they don't feel perhaps permission to bring the whole of themselves into the world, um, you know, to be able to show some of those emotions and that those negative emotions get very sort of split off and dealt with, obviously not dealt with effectively, but dealt with sort of through the binging and purging. And then I guess, again, that sort of, you know, obviously then it's sort of put onto the food, it's put onto the eating disorder behaviours, but it, I think there's so much shame and guilt not then as well just around the eating disorder behaviors themselves but also about having some of those more kind of you know more difficult emotions Mm -hmm. well they almost shame themselves for feeling shame (laughs) for feeling guilt Mm -hmm. or feeling any sort of thing that isn't what we see online or what we see is supposed to be the successful happy human being that we all want to be something that's helped me a lot as I keep growing older is that being more understanding when I'm having a bad day and realizing nothing's gone wrong, that's normal. It'd be creepy and weird if I was happy 24-7. Being an acceptance of the fact that you have normal ranges of emotions, but then also not shaming yourself on top of having bad emotions. Because I do think it's right. Like They're not only having a bad experience and a really horrible life-affecting eating disorder, and they're feeling guilt for that, but then they're also like layering it with even more shame because they're like, this shouldn't be a problem at all, even though it is a problem. Like shaming yourself for it doesn't make it go away. Mm. Yeah, and it's so true, isn't it? And I think, you know, when you have an eating disorder, you're often incredibly hard on yourself, aren't you? And yeah, and it just kind of pushes it all more underground, doesn't it? And it exacerbates the problem even more when you're kind of getting a stick out and beating yourself for like not (laughs) being able to just get over it. Hey, you're kicking someone when they're already down. Mm, yeah, no, so true. So I know the other thing we wanted to talk about a bit as well is about kind of decision making in, you know, kind of the recovery process. And I guess what I'm often thinking, you know, like when anyone is in the midst of binging and purging, it can often feel like just, you know, making rational decisions, decision making, it kind of goes out the window Because sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, you might be in quite a dissociative state. You might kind of just feel really, really anxious, kind of can't see the wood for the trees, might be in kind of like fight flight, you know, very hard to kind of be present, connected in your body and sort of, you know, to be able to kind of think clearly. So could you just say a bit more about what you mean about decision making in the recovery process? Yeah, I think this is a tricky subject, but an important one in bulimia recovery because A lot of people, and myself included, when I was going through bulimia, I thought that I had no control. There was nothing I could do when I had an urge or when I wanted a binge. And you're so right. I think before even saying what I'm going to say, 
that there are physiological factors at play and there are hormones <laughs> cascading throughout your body. There's lots of stuff that makes it very difficult to make decisions in those moments and to think rationally, especially when you're experiencing a stress response like you usually are before you're about to binge. However, something that really helped me in bulimia was realizing that there were decision-making points that I had the opportunity to make in recovery in order to not binge and discovering that there were moments maybe before I got to that heightened anxiety state that I could actually turn around and walk away before I got there that would then allow me to decide not to binge. I'm always kind of hesitant to say that because people hear that and think, oh, you're saying that people are responsible for their eating disorders. You're saying it's a choice. You're saying that people should feel shame for that. That's definitely not what I'm saying. But I am saying that if you want to recover, you have to maybe start taking responsibility for when you can make choices in order to not maybe go down that route or to kind of stop it before it gets too late. Or at the very least, like if you do go through that, making choices to be compassionate with yourself so that you don't keep putting yourself in that spiral. So when I'm talking about decision-making, I'm talking about making decisions in order to recover, making decisions in order to not put yourself in such horrible situations where you maybe want to binge. And what did you identify yourself as some of the kind of key trigger points where you began to recognize you had a choice? Yeah. So when I was at that heightened emotional state that you were describing before, where you're super anxious, can't see the light beyond the trees or something. By then, it almost felt like it was too late. I think in hindsight, if someone had come in at that moment and said, Jacqueline, don't binge, I could have done it. I needed something to interrupt me and get me out of that state. And then I would have been able to make a rational decision in that moment. But once you've kind of gone on that train momentum roller coaster, it's really hard to get off and you feel like it's too late, even though technically, you know, if someone were to walk in and interrupt your cycle, you could have. What helped me was starting to recognize early triggers that were leading down that road to this point where I felt like I couldn't control it anymore. And so typically what was going on for me is that I would binge every day after work. It was a very routine habit. And it started actually earlier in the morning. I would kind of restrict during the day. I'd also be thinking about food 24 seven and be nervous about, you know, what am I gonna eat? I probably shouldn't eat today. And that was already starting the cycle. And when I was on my way home was the point where I had an opportunity to make a decision. Because at that point, I wasn't so crazy anxious or in such a vulnerable state that I felt like I had no control. But once I made the decision in the car ride home to go to the grocery store, or once I made the decision to check my fridge and maybe even start eating food, then I felt like it was too late. And so making like before I even started the car on my way home, I started to kind of prepare myself for, okay, we're going to have an urge to binge when we, when we walk through our door. What do we want to do? What do we actually want to do and how do we want to handle it? So that was kind of an early point where I was actually still in a much more rational state and could make a proper decision. Yeah, so helpful to share that because I'm totally with you that I think a binge is often the end point, isn't it? Of like accumulation of several other things that may have been building throughout the day. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't often feel like that because I think you know, when you're just suddenly in the middle of a binge or starting off a binge, it can feel like sometimes it's come from nowhere. But I think Mm -hmm. a great point that you were saying that you were kind of restricting earlier in the day, sometimes, you know, 
and almost like thinking about food. And yeah, you know, as we all know, obviously binge triggers are more than just physiological, but if you are restricting your eating, you are then going to be really, really vulnerable to binge eating as you kind of become over hungry and preoccupied with food. And once you start eating, then feeling out of control around your eating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the other thing that I was doing that I didn't mention is that I also, I really didn't like my job. And so I was kind of putting myself through work stress. I was constantly anxious over work. And so the other side of why I was seeking binging after work was for emotional relief. So it was a really toxic combination of needing food and then also needing that emotional relief. And so the decision that I made after work was typically, okay, how are we going to, first of all, I started eating, you know, more frequently, but then also how are we going to decompress without food? Because that's what we need. And oftentimes I made the decision, just lie in my bed instead and just like close the bedroom door, lie in my bed and not think about anything. And that's what helps me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thanks so much for sharing that. Because I think, again, it's such a common thing, isn't it? I think that you and I see sort of working with our clients and, you know, I relate to this myself as well about using binge eating to regulate emotions, using food as a way to perhaps fill a void where we're not able to meet our other needs or other feelings in more healthy ways. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy how long I did that without realizing that's what I was doing. But when someone spoke about it on a podcast about how, you know, you're seeking emotional comfort with food, I was like, oh my gosh, that's totally what I'm doing all the time. And food is a great numbing agent. It's stimulating in a lot of different ways. It provides you this distraction to kind of lower the frequency of emotions in your body really effectively. It's just not, obviously, it can create a net negative in your life. It can be, because I think there's this one thing on Instagram I saw that I thought was brilliant where they said, we're not against eating as a coping mechanism, but we're against it being your only coping mechanism. And people mm -hmm. totally cope with food all the time. It's a normal thing in society, but you don't want it to be getting to the point where it's negatively impacting your life so much. Binge eating and constantly overeating or emotional eating is definitely causing a negative impact on people's lives. Mm, yeah, and no, it's so true. And do you find, Jacqueline, with some of your clients as well, that maybe some people with bulimia really struggle with being able to say no, to set boundaries and, you know, take care of their needs because perhaps they don't feel that permission to do so? Mm, yeah, I think so. I think that they feel a lot of people who struggle with bulimia and eating disorders in general, I feel like they're really hard workers and they want to do a lot and they have such high expectations of themselves but they do it at the cost of their own emotional stability and mental sanity. And they just push themselves and bulimia becomes their only way to decompress or have time to themselves again. So yeah, I think they definitely have issues with saying no and setting boundaries. Mm. Yeah. And no, it's so tricky, isn't it? Cause it kind of becomes a kind of coping strategy to almost escape life, get some relief, decompress those emotions and maybe, you know, I'm speaking again for myself here, I think sometimes I would kind of know that I was suppressing my feelings or that I wasn't meeting my needs, but I kind of really struggled to feel that I had permission to have those needs. And also I almost felt guilty as well for being more assertive or almost kind of like, you know, being able to kind of put myself forward and have a voice. 
So bulimia was kind of like a sort of safe way of avoiding that almost, you know, being able to kind of get that relief, but without actually having to, it's quite avoidant of some of the conversations I needed to have, some of the boundaries I needed to set. So yeah. yeah. Where do you think that came from? The feeling like you aren't allowed to have a voice or that your needs, feeling guilt for having needs? Oh, that could probably be a whole podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Just curious because I see it a lot and sometimes I don't understand why we have that. So I'm curious what your opinions are on it. Yeah, I mean, I think in my own personal experience, and I guess this is going to be slightly different for everybody, but it was quite a lot to do with perhaps my family of origin and, you know, in my family growing up, I very much needed to be the kind of good girl who kept the peace, kept harmony, and it wasn't really safe growing up to be able to express my feelings because that would have created a lot of stress and upset and you know, difficulties for people around me. So I very much learned to, you know, the safe thing was to please others, keep the peace, make it all harmonious. But I suppose at a real cost to myself. And I guess the guilt came in terms of, you know, the childhood guilt, I guess, was a bit more appropriate, because it was almost like I knew that would be very distressing, or turbulent for the people around me, maybe if I was honest about my needs. But then of course, bringing that into my adult relationships, that's not healthy because of for, for all kinds of reasons. But I mean, that's definitely what was true for me. But I guess it could be slightly different for different people. But I think it's going back to early life often, not necessarily always family, it could be school or friendships or, but probably an early formative relationship where, you know, we kind of got into that role of having to suppress our feelings and be the good child. Yeah. What you just said there, I was like, oh, wow, this sounds exactly like my childhood. So Mm -hmm. I can completely relate the same thing for me. It was, I was the good child and my sibling had a lot of issues, required a lot of attention. And it felt like if I was putting too much stress on my family to have any issues going on. And I felt the huge responsibility that even if I had issues to take care of it myself, even though they were loving and supportive, it just, it was clear to me that they couldn't handle more stress or that's what I thought they probably could have, but I didn't think that they could. And those things, they stick with you. What you learn I don't want to say that your childhood is everything. Of course, there are formative things that happen all throughout your life, but your childhood years definitely affect you. And it's kind of funny because I thought about this a lot as I'm still working with people and as I've recovered, because my childhood, you know, you always hear about people having these traumatic things that create an eating disorder. My childhood wasn't that traumatic, but clearly there were things there that wasn't healthy. And that combined with maybe being predisposed to an eating disorder really was like, I guess, toxic tea that created it for me. So thank you for sharing that. It was insightful. Hmm. Okay. No, that's okay. I think what's interesting as well, isn't it? I think it's quite a common theme actually that, you know, obviously some people listening to this and, you know, some people have been through, you know, really significant trauma and abuse. And of Mm -hmm. course that's going to really impact one's mental health, but I think even more commonly what I see in the therapy room is actually, you know, people have come from supportive families where they knew they were loved, they had all their physical needs met, but for whatever reason, you know, there may have been, you know, a reason why a child's emotional needs weren't met. And again, I think parents have really great intentions are usually doing the best they can, but if a family is undergoing sort of stress, there's lots of things going on, you know, like you're saying that you had a sibling who needed extra support. 
if there are these things going on, sometimes the adults just don't have the resources to be present emotionally, perhaps in the way that you need them to be. And it's not about getting into blame, but it's just about beginning to understand, really, because I think we are all doing the best we can. I know, you know, I'm a parent mm-hmm. and I completely get it wrong. I'm sure all my three will go to therapy. <laughs> um, yeah. But I suppose it's just to really validate that, isn't it? Like, I think people are sometimes confused that like, you know, I had a great childhood. I don't get it. But I think if you're listening and you relate to that, it's hard to think about just to reflect on what about the emotional component of your upbringing and just to notice how are emotions dealt within the family? You know, how do people sort of talk to each other? Could people express emotions? Was it safe to do that? Just to reflecting on some of that communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, in my work, I tend to focus a lot more on the now and the changing behaviors now and breaking habits and tactics you can use in the moment. But it's so important also to address the root cause because then you can kind of get closure and understand and focus on the emotional side as well. Mm, yeah and it's quite a kind of balance isn't it of marrying the deeper work with the symptom work I think you know you kind of need both don't you I think for recovery absolutely yeah yeah a lot of people that come to me they've already had lots of therapy on their issues that created it but they still have the habits in place still have these symptoms or the actions that are perpetuating and that's what I tend to help with a lot Mm, yeah that's great so and know that Jacqueline so Jacqueline do you have anything that you want to kind of mention that's kind of going on in your business or you know anything that you just want to kind of like give a shout out to well depends on when this comes out but what's going on in my business is you know the podcast is growing so if you love this episode and you relate it to me then check my podcast out at Binge Breakers it's all about bulimia and I bring guests on as well And then in my business, I'm doing more free challenges, which are exciting. And that's, you know, we try to dive into a free kind of binge free challenge and go through those days learning concepts that will help you in breaking the habit of bulimia. So that's been really cool. You can find out more at bingebreakers.com. And is there anything else going on? Oh, I have just released a new group coaching program that goes along with my course and other things that I do, but it's a really affordable way to get the help that you need without, you know, but that's less expensive than maybe one-to-one, but there's a whole community in there and stuff like that. I didn't do a good job explaining it, but that's what's going on in my business. So if you want to know more, just go to bingebreakers.com. Well, no, it all sounds brilliant. And where's the best place? I know you've kind of given a few links and things there through that we've been saying, but what's the best place if people like thinking, yeah, I want to join the group or I want to be involved, where do they find you? What's the best place to go to? You know, I think the best place to go to is my Instagram, which is bingebakers under Fribolemia and checking out the link that I have there because it has really handy, easy links to everything that I'm mentioning. So mm-hmm. if I were you, I'd go there first. And then you can kind of get to know me in a quick glance and see if I'm your cup of tea or not. I'm not always people's cups of tea. So that's a good place to get to know me and then find out more. Mm-hmm. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, well, I'll make sure that, you know, put that in the show notes. And I'll also link Jacqueline to our previous episode, which was back in September 2021. So if people want to hear more about your story and how you recovered, they can find out more by listening to that one. Mm, thank you. Yeah. And hopefully there's also people listening. Harriet has been on my podcast as well. I forget what it's called. But it's definitely if you go to Binge Breakers, on whatever podcast platform you usually listen to, there's an episode with Harriet Prue as well. Okay, brilliant. 
<laughs> well, Jacqueline, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You know, great chatting to you again. Really appreciate you sharing all your expertise and, you know, love just talking to you and having someone else out there in the world who's like supporting people with bulimia. And yeah, just really appreciate talking to you. So thank you so much. Yeah, likewise. You always provide really valuable insights. And I love talking to you because you I usually learn things from you as well from our conversations. So thank you. Oh, likewise. Thanks so much. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Do go and check out all of Jacqueline's info in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the eating disorder therapist. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eating disorder therapist.co.uk. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm